Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krauss, and I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It is a big, big show, so let's get right at it. Later on, we'll meet Lila Fitzgerald. Best known for her roles in Seventh Son and Monster High, she is also a busy author with her debut novel, Stars and Swashbucklers, set to release on April 4th. The book is a futuristic fantasy that follows a girl on a sailing trip across the shattered Earth that has become a series of islands floating between the stars. We'll find out all about that a little bit later on. We'll also get to know Métis Ukrainian writer and educator Connor Kerr. His debut novel, Avenue of Champions, won the 2022 Relit Award and was shortlisted for the 2022 Amazon Walrus Debut Novel Award. And it's available right now, his debut novel, wherever you buy fine books. First, though, let's meet Jacob Silverman. He's a journalist in New York City where he writes about technology, cryptocurrency, and politics. He's the author of Terms of Service, Social Media, and the Price of Constant Connection, and is a contributing editor for The New Republic and The Baffler. His new book, co-written with the actor and writer Ben McKenzie, is called Easy Money, Cryptocurrency, Casino Capitalism, and the Golden Age of Fraud, and will be published by Abrams Books in July 20. 23. He's also the host of a new podcast, The Naked Emperor, about Sam Bankman-Fried from CBC News Front Burner and CBC Podcasts. The Naked Emperor is on CBC and everywhere podcasts are available. It is the story of Sam Bankman-Fried, once a billionaire and the trusted face of crypto with his trading platform FTX. Despite his dorm room lifestyle, he charmed celebrities, politicians, and Silicon Valley. That is, until it all came crashing down. Today, Sam faces charges that could send him to jail for the rest of his life, and it is a fascinating story told in this podcast. SBF was sold as the one to make crypto safe for the masses. It's FTX. It's a safe and easy way to get into crypto. But look past the fawning praise and the surging wealth. What risks lurked underneath? This morning, shockwaves across the world of cryptocurrency as federal regulators reportedly investigate the sudden collapse of FTX. Jacob Silverman joined me via Zoom from New York City. Let's assume for a second uh, that people listening know nothing about cryptocurrency. What are kind of uh, the, the basics? Just that, you know, when we talk about tokens, these are cryptocurrencies, uh, they're digital assets, kind of like uh, basically fake money that that corporations have created, uh, not unlike private money from the 19th century when American railroads and stuff were issued, or company script or something like that. Mm-hmm. But now they're in a, a shiny digital wrapper uh, with the blockchain technology and they're sort of trading like like digital assets, um, like stocks almost. Crypto doesn't exist. You can't hold it. it it's kept in a in a wallet, a, like a digital wallet somewhere. And therein lies kind of some of the problems, right? These wallets aren't always secure. They're not always easily accessible. Crypto aspires very much to be a secure environment through various principles like decentralization or in some cases open source code and the blockchain. The, the tech that they use does have a public component to it. You can often track transactions. Right. Um, there are greater complexities to, uh, in practice, but, but that's kind of how it goes. But what we see is that actually, you know, crypto doesn't end up being that very often. There are m- numerous security problems, um, especially because 
um, just without getting too technical, but by the what happens here is once you do something in crypto, once you send someone money, it's very uh, um, it's very difficult to reverse a transaction. For mm. example, um, you know someone could send it back to you, but say um, you're hacked and someone drains your account uh, of all of its crypto and sends it somewhere. You're not getting it back. There's also kind of an egalitarian myth, I think, about cryptocurrency that, you know, the average person can just become a billionaire or, or at least make uh, huge amounts of money, far more money than you could playing the stock market uh, in a very uh, short amount of time. But that's not really the case either, right? It's It tends to be my very amateur uh, look at this suggests that it's big time tech players it's people who are rich already that are are making the money here so just break that down for me if you could yeah it's kind of like the old saying about the california gold rush that like the people who made money were the people selling the shovels um <laughs> and um so you know you see people at the top of the industry um venture capitalists um executives at these companies and, and others who are making out well sometimes because they are being paid in real dollars, mm -hmm. um, but also because they are, not to be too lofty about it, but there are asymmetries of information. You know, they have the inside track on things. They know which companies to invest in. Whereas the, the average retail trader or just person on the street, they probably bought into crypto in 2020 or 2021 during the big boom. That We know that actually statistically. And then as uh, FTX exemplifies, there have been there's been a subsequent series of crashes um, across the board and all asset prices, a number of companies going bankrupt, uh, criminal actions, et cetera. So, um, you know, to actually have invested in crypto, ridden the, the boom up in some way and then cashed out for real money is a less common story than you might think. Um, the, the issue I would say is that uh, the people kind of running the show uh, are very happy with things and a, a lot of them have done well and they have big audiences on, on Twitter and in media and elsewhere. You're listening to Jacob Silverman on The Richard Krauss Show. His podcast, The Naked Emperor, is on CBC and everywhere podcasts are available. So, you know, people kind of aspire to that. Like, why couldn't I be like that guy? And some of whom are just influencers, perhaps, who... Claim they became millionaires overnight or in a matter of months. So there is this gesture towards popul populism and egalitarianism, like this, this could be any of you. But I also think, frankly, that's a characteristic of every get rich quick scheme, mm -hmm. this promise, like this could be you. How did you get uh, interested in this? You're a tech reporter, you you write about technology. This is, is this the story of in the zeitgeist right now? Is this the most important tech story? Um, I, I think, to be honest, in some ways, it, it's going to be superseded soon, um, in some ways, by the latest hype, uh, which is AI. Not mm. to say that one is more important than the other, but that does, this isn't over. I mean, Sam Bankman-Free doesn't go on trial until October, and there's still companies that are filing for bankruptcy every week, and there's still people losing money. So, you know, AI might be the next fad or viral sensation, but... Um, you know, average people aren't really losing money on AI or risking money on AI unless, you know, 10 years from now they get replaced by it. But, um, right. but you know, there are still people who are waiting for where's my money and, you know, uh, people who we talk to for the show um, who may not, who have to go through the regular bankruptcy process. And then maybe in a couple of years, they'll get pennies on the dollar or virtual pennies on the virtual dollar. 
Um, and so this story is still very much ongoing, I think. So that that's why I think it's still really important in tech and, and because it, it's not just tech, it's also finance. And it, just the fallout's gonna be is ongoing um, and will be for a long time. Um, we say on the show that uh, fraud is a social crime, uh, meaning it affects people beyond the initial victim, families, friends, you know, especially if you lost money and maybe need to turn to someone for for help. Um, and, uh, you know, it causes other issues like um, depression or substance abuse, things like that. So um, we'll be dealing with this for a while, I think. So let's talk about Sam Bankman-Fried. Uh, they call him SBF. Uh, you probably uh, have heard about him in the news. He's been arrested. It was a big, big story. Um, why wasn't he like the other crypto moguls? I mean, he's certainly more famous than most of the others. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, just the person who looms kind of in the background is a, a guy named uh, CZ, as he goes by, who's the CEO of Binance. That's the biggest exchange in the world. Uh, kind of has no home base, um, but is the biggest one in the world. Uh, he plays a role in the story, but besides cz sam was the biggest sam was kind of the face of crypto certainly in north america mm -hmm. uh, where because uh, binance is a successful company but they don't advertise nearly as much as uh ftx did so um ftx by volume was probably uh the, maybe the second biggest exchange um so it was a big player but it did things that binance and other ones and other companies hadn't really managed to do um I think it kind of put together certain pieces that some companies were, were doing, but it did them all at once. For example, it had a lot of celebrity endorsements, top uh, some some really famous people. Uh, it put its name on an arena. It had more pop cultural presence than most others. And then very importantly, as we talked on the show, it had political presence because uh, Sam was funneling a lot of money to politicians. And according to the uh, U.S. government, he he broke campaign finance laws in the process. But we know that at least a third of Congress, of the U.S. Congress, received donations uh, from Sam, FTX, or an FTX executive, basically from this larger entity that Sam controlled. Right. On both so, sides of the aisle, too, right? Yes. Yeah. A lot of this was very bipartisan. I mean, there was less of a united front, I would say, on, Demo on the Democratic side. And I, I took a, a trip to Capitol Hill and spoke to some people like, there are people who had regulatory or consumer protection concerns, but it wasn't a popular thing to say last summer right. before we had this huge blow up. I mean, there were companies failing already, but the money was still flowing. And the idea at the time really was that Sam Bankman Freed actually and the various lobbyists uh, who were being thrown at Washington were going to come up with some legislation. They already were uh, actually. And that you know, the regulatory measures would fall in place and kind of make this industry more palatable for public consumption and frankly, more profitable. And because Sam was doing a lot of things offshore, Sam was able to be influential in a variety of fields and sort of exercise the levers of power uh, and be appealing to people in a way that um, even in his sort of nerd genius persona that in a way that no, no crypto company had really put all those pieces together, I think, um, you know, even a lot of the executives are sort of can be considered uh, abrasive or liberty or too libertarian for some people's tastes. I mean, some of them are suing the government, like mm -hmm. like Coinbase is in some lawsuits or or at least promising some with the U.S. government. So Sam was less adversarial and more sort of 
Here, take my money and let's talk. It seems to me that his greatest gift was that he was able to convince people that they understood something that they didn't really understand. And yeah. to me, that is kind of the basis uh, at the very root of what made his uh, rise so quick and then his fall so devastating. I, I think that's right. I mean, he he has the gift of gab. He likes to talk. And sometimes he sort of goes on these long stem winders where you're, you may not really be sure what he's saying um, <laughs> or what he's talking about, but it sounds kind of intelligent and informed and and you probably want to go along with it. How did it all fall apart? The one thing I think people who would, people like me who are trying to tell the story to the public and people in crypto might say is that this was just so dramatic by industry, even by industry standards, where there's where volatility is the name of the game and, and companies fail all the time. And there are people who are, there are major industry figures who are currently fugitives, like mm. this guy Do Kwan is a fugitive in South Korea. Um, a year ago, he was at, he was at the top. Um, I mean, he was a major respected figure. So, like, crypto is known for this sort of crazy dynamism, but this was within a week, really. Yeah. Sam went. Um, he it took a month for him to get arrested, but yeah, with uh, one week, he was considered uh, the most influential figure in crypto, probably certainly in in North America. And then the next week, he was completely disgraced, broke. And you know, facing impending indictment, um, and he had been worth billions of dollars. I mean, we're talking yeah, a great I mean, deal of money you, here. You, yeah, the thing you learn. I'm sorry. The thing, the thing you learn with crypto is that these are sort of fantasy numbers. But he did control a lot of real money, um, and um, and you know, on paper, he was worth billions. The company was worth up to 32 billion, perhaps more. Uh, his personal wealth, I think, was around 10 estimated 10 billion or more. So this this was a big deal and, mm -hmm. and, you know, ranks in sort of the corporate crime history books. You're listening to Jacob Silverman on The Richard Krause Show. His podcast, The Naked Emperor, is on CBC and can also be heard wherever you listen to find podcasts. Uh, what happened was, in some ways, or what's alleged happened and what a lot of his colleagues have pled guilty to, is that this actually wasn't a very effective criminal enterprise in some ways. Uh, it was very good at stealing a lot of money in the short term or accumulating a lot of money, but it didn't last very long. I mean, this was just in classic crypto fashion, this like boomed. And then within, I mean, FTX was founded, I think in 2019, uh, Alameda, sort of the predecessor company that plays a role in the story a couple of years earlier. So, you know, unlike Bernie Madoff, say, who ran a, con a very successful con for decades, this, you know, soared and crashed so spectacularly I think that's also what adds to sort of the drama, like how could this happen in that particular way? Um, and what really ended up happening and taking down Sam was market conditions uh, got bad. There was a general uh, crash across the board. Um, there was a balance sheet leak that showed that they basically were using a lot of cryptocurrencies to uh, and overinflating their value to pay their debts and pay their bills. Uh, a lot of money had then we then learned had disappeared out the side door. So it was in some ways just a lot of classic recklessness uh, in their trading, theft, potentially fraud. I mean, all alleged, but also people have pled guilty to this stuff, but alleged on Sam's part. Um, so that's, I think, also what makes it interesting is like, it, it, yeah, crypto plays a role. And there's some things about here that are kind of crypto particular, crypto specific. But this is a story that I think uh, 
kind of resonates with 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 timeless uh motivations of, of greed and opportunity that underlie a lot of frauds yeah this could have happened at any time in history that people have been trading money back and forth probably it just happens to have a a tech spin to it this time yeah and i mean they could be penny stocks or something else yeah. uh and you know if you look at the indictment and the crimes that the 12 charges against sam uh a lot of them are sort of classic like wire fraud or conspiracy to commit wire fraud just violating i mean that we found crypto people seem to in the course of doing business often violate these laws around banking and finance and, tra and the transmission of money the really interesting and sort of juicy stuff is in the details and also when you get to the charge about um illegal fi uh, campaign finance donations uh, mm -hmm. i think there's still some question of who else might be enmeshed in that is is there going to be a politician perhaps is he a supervillain well he certainly has a friendliness and he wants he wants to talk to people and even yeah. now he wants to explain himself it seems like his spokesman and lawyers might be keeping him a little more in check he he declined to speak to us again but he used to direct message me and others on twitter um you know i think sam couldn't have gotten this far without having some appealing aspect and ability to relate to relate to people in his own way um and one thing i do think is worth emphasizing is he couldn't have gotten this far without both enablers so people perhaps looked the other way or gave him money or invested in him or promoted him and then the actual criminal accomplices who are his friends and his colleagues uh, a number several of whom have already pled guilty to major crimes so um that I, I think sam is certainly at the heart of this and has perhaps a talent for deceiving people uh, i hesitate to psychologize him too much but there is a there is something unusual going on here. I mean, a guy who who seems to think he can still talk his way out of this, mm -hmm. given the odds against him. I mean, all of his friends have pleaded guilty. There's a lot of detail here in, in the existing legal doc filings. And the odds for any federal defendant are very low. So that's, I think, another fascinating part of this story is why did he think he could do it and get away with it and why does he actually seem to think right now that he didn't do anything wrong because i think part of him does think that is crypto done or is this just a a dent that will soon get buffed out and and it will continue on well if you talk to people in crypto you know for some people it has hit them hard and and it is perhaps a moment of disillusionment uh, a lot of people are sort of going back to bitcoin because they think that's the one true crypto mm -hmm. um I don't want to be too, but they all think that there's another bull run coming at some point. There's some next big thing because a, a lot of them either are invested or believe in this stuff in one way or another. Um, I don't want to be too definitive, but I do think it, we say in the show, I think this is the end of consumer crypto as we know it, mm -hmm. because uh, for one thing, the volume numbers just aren't there. A lot of people have left the proverbial casino because they haven't gotten what they wanted or they lost their money or they can't or they were on FTX and they can't even access their crypto. Um, so I don't think people will come back unless something changes. Um, there's a new story told or, or new products or a real use case, because right now crypto doesn't do enough for people or really have a definable, simple use case to justify the risks and the complexity um most things that you might want to do with crypto you can do other ways and usually have it fdic insured uh here in the us that you know have you know have some form of insurance or legal backing behind say a bank transfer um so i think crypto has a lot to prove 
there's still money flowing in, which is what ensures it's going to be around. The, the venture capital companies still have some money, but this might be their last go around to, to really try to push this stuff on people in the next couple of years. Because otherwise, I, I argue, I don't think it's lived up to its promises. And it actually really has been around for about 13 or 14 years in one form or another. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of technologies end up proving themselves in much shorter time frames. I don't think crypto or blockchain is the next internet. Jacob, thank you so much. That's fascinating stuff. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. That was Jacob Silverman on The Richard Krauss Show. His podcast, The Naked Emperor, is from CBC News Front Burner and CBC Podcasts and is available wherever fine podcasts are heard. His new book, co-written with actor and writer Ben McKenzie, is called Easy Money, Cryptocurrency, Casino Capitalism, and the Age of Fraud and will be published by Abrams Books in July 2023. Let's meet Métis Ukrainian writer and educator Connor Kerr. His debut novel, Avenue of Champions, won the 2022 Relit Award and was shortlisted for the 2022 Amazon Walrus Debut Novel Award and is available now wherever you buy fine books. The book centers on Daniel, a young Métis man searching for a way to exist in a world of violence, intergenerational trauma, and systemic racism. Connor Kerr joined me via Zoom from Winnipeg. Congratulations on the book. It's titled The Avenue of Champions. For people who don't live in Edmonton, uh, tell us a little bit about what that means. Yeah, Edmonton's a, a funny city. It was a, had that classic move back in the 80s of just branding everything really really strongly and so the city itself was you know the city of champions and then with uh the 80s oilers dynasty the edmonton uh former or edmonton elk now uh there were you know all these sports teams and so the road that led down towards kind of the stadiums uh 118th avenue they decided to brand as the Avenue of Champions. Um, and all the way down and along it, you know, there's all these big murals now very faded from like the 80s of all these sports stars. But it's also a neighborhood that uh, it's very inner city Edmonton. Um, it, uh, it It's a lot of indigenous people live in that area. A lot of African, African refugees now live in that area or African community people. Um, and it's uh, it's kind of been forgotten by Edmonton city planners for the most part. It's pretty, you know, old houses from the 1930s, 1940s have kind of fallen into ruin. But with all of that, um, it's also got a ton of community, a ton of community spirit, a ton of pride in it, uh, a really strong group of people that are kind of making things work despite the city essentially forgetting about this entire neighborhood and area and letting it exist back in the 80s when the uh, when the sports dynasties were in full, full form. And you lived there for a number of years when you were much younger. What do you remember about it? Like the sense of community, was that still there then? Or had that started to really grow and, and thrive then? Oh, yeah. I think it's been there for a long time. And uh, I lived uh, right behind a very classic Edmonton landmark, the giant baseball bat, um, the world's <laughs> most giant baseball bat, right on 118th Avenue and 97th Street. Yep. Uh, and I had some friends who lived a little bit farther down. And a lot of the landmarks that are in the book were really like, um, I guess, like monumental to our lives. We didn't know it at the time, you know, but like certain pubs, like the Mona Lisa pub, which is right on kind of that corner of also 97th and uh 118th um 
great karaoke. Still go there with my friends on a regular basis to sing karaoke. Uh, it's just been a kind of a classic neighborhood kind of pub that held a lot of things together. My friends, aunties and family were often in there. We'd go in there, you know, looking for uh, money to buy lunches when we were kids and doing that whole thing. Um, but there's always been this sense of uh, support within the community. Everyone's kind of got that same... Um, I wouldn't say like uh, uh, everyone's kind of coming from a similar type perspective. There's not this like flaunting of wealth or anything along those lines. It's a get by. It's a trying to turn a survival neighborhood into a thriving neighborhood. And you're not going to get we're not going to be able to do that. Everyone kind of living in there through fiscal means like that's long gone. So you take that through really trying to build up, um, you know, more community events, creating like a space for that and um, and really getting the support of kind of neighbors. There's some great coffee shops, great restaurants along there, but also just um, uh, it's a neighborhood where people will have each other's back and kind of stand mm -hmm. up for each other. And when people are from that area, you know, you kind of have that that respect and that pride of growing up right within the inner city of Edmonton. And a big portion of that, you know, being from the Métis kind of community, there is a lot of people who've been kind of cast out by the colonial systems put in place in the neighborhood. Um, but we're able to build our own kind of community there as well. You're listening to Connor Kerr on The Richard Krause Show. His award-winning book, Avenue of Champions, is available wherever fine books are sold. When you were growing up on the Avenue uh, of Champions, did you know uh, people who were writers or who made their living in the arts? When I was living there, I was going to the University of Alberta actually at the time, uh, and uh, and I was taking creative writing courses and just kind of being in that general space. And uh, a couple of writers, in particular the Métis poet Marilyn Dumont, as well as the short story and novel writer uh, Richard Van Camp, they were both working at the U of A or in that kind of area at the time. And I remember reading the lesser blessed Richard Van Camp's 1996 novel and being like, this is crazy. Like no one writes actual contemporary indigenous characters. Like it just felt like, obviously some people do, but at the time, like for someone coming up with a Western, like, you know, post-secondary kind of system where you're studying Shakespeare, you're studying Hemingway and Fitzgerald and a lot of old white dead men, you're, you don't, you're not exposed to writers like Richard Wagamese or Richard Van Camp, Thomas King at the time. And so when I first started reading these like writers, I was like, this is cool. And this is also such a, uh, an opportunity to tell kind of a modern contemporary indigenous experience one that goes beyond the stereotypes that we often read about or we see in the media but really what does it look like for you know Métis kids in my case in particular growing up in the avenue of champions and just trying to survive and just trying to have a good time and not leaning into like stereotypical tropes as well you must be heartened to hear that uh, more Indigenous literature is going to be taught in schools. I don't know if it's across the country yet, but here in Ontario, where I'm talking to you from, and in British Columbia, school boards have have said that they're going to pull back on Shakespeare and, and some of the stuff that has traditionally been taught and make sure that there is a stream of Indigenous literature being uh, worked into the curriculum as well. Yeah, and it's uh, uh, and I think there's such, like, you know, a lot of good teachers and professors have just been doing it on their own accord anyways, kind of outside of the school, like, confines and uh, and bringing those uh, works into their classes. And I know a couple of my friends who are high school teachers in Edmonton have brought the Avenue Champions right into their 
their classrooms as well, but uh, which really is a fitting book for Edmonton inner city high schools. Uh, but it's it's really kind of just an exciting time too. You know, you got writers like Jessica Johns, who just put out a novel, Bad Cree, uh, Billy Ray Belcourt's a minor chorus and a phenomenal book, Joshua Whitehead's uh, Johnny Appleseed, just from the fictional sense. And that's not even getting into the nonfiction, the poetry and a ton of other like work and writing that's coming out these days. And it's just a really exciting time for all these stories to be shared. Um, and I think there's so much more opportunity to bring out even more story, like for others to be able to share theirs. Like there's never going to be like, oh, nope, we hit the cap and we're good on, <laughs> on these literatures. Like we need more and more and more. And everyone's got such a valid voice that I'm, a, I'm really, you know, I read these books and I'm just excited because they're they're different. They're, they're, they speak to a different experience than the ones that people kind of just made up and put in place for Indigenous peoples beforehand. And the Giller uh, acknowledgement must have been uh, something that not only raises the profile of the book, and hopefully that leads to more people reading it and more sales and that kind of thing, uh, but it must be a pretty cool uh, thing to have on the resume at least. Yeah, it's very, it's kind of very validating. And I was actually, uh, I was back in, uh, in Treaty 6 territory in Edmonton there, um, just camping outside of the city, uh, bird hunting, and just hanging out in my little trailer at a campground. And um, my, my agent, uh, Cody Catano, also another, in faint, like, really good Indigenous writer, um, sent me a message and said, like, he didn't know, of course, but he was like, hey, that Giller thing, Longlist is happening in like an hour. You should tune into the announcement. And I was like, yeah, you know, I'm making my coffee, hanging outside, beautiful fall morning. And, and I'm like, ah, I was going to go bird hunting, but I'll, I guess I'll wait and hang out for a little bit. And uh, and then like seeing that and being included with such a, a phenomenal names like Billy Ray Belcourt, um, you know, Suzette Mayer, like all these different amazing writers. Like, it was such a such an honor, um, especially for a book that was like, it's about very specifically Métis people in Edmonton. Like that's not necessarily like something that really like hits the national bestseller. But I think the story like uh, kind of goes all the way through. And I've actually heard from a lot of people in Toronto, a lot of people out East too, about how much they love the book and how much they even learned like about kind of Métis identity, but also like just that prairie experience at the same time. That was Connor Kerr on The Richard Krause Show. His new award-winning book, Avenue of Champions, is available wherever fine books are sold. My guest in this segment is Lila Fitzgerald. She's best known for her roles in Seventh Son and Monster High. She is also a busy author these days with her debut novel, Stars and Swashbucklers, set to release on April 4th. The book is a futuristic fantasy that follows a girl on a sailing trip across a shattered earth that has become a series of islands floating between the stars. Fitzgerald reveals in the interview that the book was inspired by a dream, and we'll find out all about that in our conversation. Here's Lila Fitzgerald. One story in particular uh, I've read uh, changed her life, and that's The Little Prince. If you're not familiar with the story, it's The Little Prince is about um, a pilot who gets stranded in the Sahara Desert and meets this little prince who's come from an asteroid and comes down to Earth and basically teaches him what it means to be human and what the true point of life is. And I think I read it at a time where I, for the first time, was, you know, 
about to enter puberty and being a bit older and suddenly having the world look at me in a different way than they Mm. did when I was a cute little nine-year-old. And reading it helped ground me in what life means, that it's not about showbiz. It's not about, you know, being the most famous. It's not about having the most money. It's about having people and creatures that matter to you that you matter back to them and putting love out into the world and bringing laughter and bringing light to people. Do you have uh, a new book coming out uh, called stars and swashbucklers? And the idea for that book came to you in a dream. I never fully planned for it to be a book, but one dreary November, I had this beautiful dream where I felt just fully, I have very vivid dreams. Uh, My dreams always play out kind of like the plot of an action movie or (laughs) a book. And so when I had this dream, it was one of the most vivid dreams I've ever had. And I really knew the people in it and lived through it being on, you know, this cruise airship that was sailing through the stars instead of the oceans and looking for relics and, you know, trying to save all of these islands. And when I woke up, all I could think was, I wish I could go back there. I I wish I could live in that dream. I wish I could go visit it. And even, you know, I wish I could read a book about that. Mm -hmm. And so I sort of had this idea to just, you know, write it myself and see what happens. You don't just sit down and start on the first page. So tell me, what did you have to learn? What disciplines uh, were there? It's different than acting. It's different than any other discipline. So tell me a little bit about that. I wrote my book in a very odd way because growing up, as I said, I always wanted to be a storyteller. And I would always have these vivid dreams or vivid imaginations that I would think, wow, that would make a great book. And so I'd write about 30 pages and then go tell my mom or my sister or my friend and be like, listen to this cool story. And as soon as I tell the story out loud, it doesn't need to be told anymore. (laughs) I didn't want that magic of the dream I had to disappear. I was terrified of losing it. Mm. I wanted to keep it all to myself. So when I first had the idea of, okay, I might try to just see what happens if I just write this myself, just for an escape, just for fun, just to get away from real life and the pressures of acting and dancing and all of that. So I wrote an outline for myself. I had never written an outline for a book before, but I was like, you know what, for this one, I'm going to do it. And that saved me because I basically just, you know, wrote down what happened in the dream in a very brief context and then sectioned that off into what could be chapters. And then I just went chapter by chapter through it. And I wrote the entire thing in secret because I didn't want my mom and sister to find out. At the time, I was sharing a room with my sister. So I didn't have much secret privacy. So what I would do, I would wait until she fell asleep. Then I'd pull my phone out and under the covers, I wrote like the first half of my book on my phone until the document got too big. You're listening to Lila Fitzgerald on The Richard Krause Show. Look for her in the new Monster High. Also, find her book, Stars and Swashbucklers, wherever you buy fine books as of April 4th. And then for the second half of the book, I was actually on a cross-country train trip with my sister. So sitting in that train, I would just be typing away, just like, oh, yeah, I'm just having fun. I'm just doing something. And then... Just checking Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just, you know... I'm just playing, writing my diary. (laughs) Um, And when I finally finished it on that train trip, I sort of, you know, wrote the last words at 3 a.m. and realized, oh, wait, I did it. I wrote a book. 
I didn't really intend to. I didn't set out to make a book to publish. And mm. I think that's almost what let me finish the book because I was just writing it for myself. It was just for me. And now that it's done, uh, who do you hope it is for? I hope it's for the girls who escape into books like I have. Mm. Being a teenage girl is incredibly, incredibly difficult, especially in the age of social media. I think another really important factor of my book that I didn't even realize until after finishing it is I have pretty severe OCD. And you can see that the magic in my book and the evil in my book has the voice of obsessive compulsive disorder. And I don't want to give up too much away mm -hmm. from it, but there are so many books out there that are really, really great books on, you know, characters who are struggling with mental health, but not many of them take place in the fantasy world. And I find for myself, when I'm reading, I'm going to escape from real life. I want full escapism. So I want this book to be for people who want escapism, but also want to see themselves reflected in there. They want to see their anxiety taking, you know, a physical magical form that can be dealt with and gotten rid of. Monster High is continuing and congratulations on that. Uh, and when you were uh, little, you and your sister used to play with monster dolls. Uh, it must be kind of surreal now to be playing Ghoulie in Monster High. Yeah. So being in Monster High, Ghoulia was actually my favorite doll yeah. when I was growing up. I loved her most because she was a nerd. <laughs> um, she writes comic books. And even before I had actually written a novel, I was always trying to write books. Mm -hmm. um, and so seeing her be like a little more introverted and writing her stories, but still be accepted by the rest of the extroverted and out there friend group was really important for me as a kid growing up who definitely was exuberant and liked putting on shows, but didn't always feel like she could be all out there all the time. And I guess uh, that character is for other young women and girls out there that, that kind of feel the same way. And I think that's really important to have out there. Congratulations on that. Congratulations on the book. And uh, are you working on another book now or is you're going to just see how this one goes? I am. I'm currently editing the second book, which wow. is pretty difficult because actually the first and second book were one book um, mm. that was very, very, very long, much too long <laughs> for a young adult debut. So I did my rounds of querying and the feedback I got back was, you know, this sounds promising, but no one's going to buy that book. Right. And I was like, okay. And so I split it in half, had to do a bunch of, you know, shifting. It turned out much better for it. Um, and now I'm working on making the second half of the book make sense funny that you wrote you know a 900 page book on your phone <laughs> that is a, that, yes. that's a lot of typing in secret it was <laughs> i'm still don't really know how i made it work but <laughs> not questioning it that was lila fitzgerald on the richard Krause show watch her on monster high and then check out her new fantasy novel stars and swashbucklers in stores as of April 4th. Big thanks goes out to Lila. A big thanks to Connor Kerr. Find his book, Avenue of Champions, wherever you buy fine books. Also want to thank Jacob Silverman for stopping by. His podcast, The Naked Emperor, is on CBC and everywhere else that podcasts are available. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon.